this huge slopes down to the sea. That's the city of Macedonia, the city of Thessalonica in Macedonia. It was a, a thriving center of commerce. It was a hub for religion and philosophy and ideas. There was a strong Jewish contingent there. That's obvious from Acts 17, because when Paul and Silas and Timothy arrived there, they follow the usual practice of preaching in the synagogues. There was a significant Jewish presence there. But largely, it was a Gentile congregation. It was a Gentile city with all the pagan gods and idols that go with that. So that's the city that you're living as a resident of Thessalonica. But you, of course, the day before Paul turns up anyway, know little or probably nothing about the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing about Jesus. Now, for most of us in this room, that's hard to imagine and get our heads around. We probably can't think back that far. And probably before you became a Christian, you knew something about Jesus. But just imagine you know nothing about Jesus. And then this man, Paul, turns up and starts to turn the world on its head, in the words of Acts 17, by preaching about this man called the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he preaches, as he teaches, and as he debates and persuades in the synagogues and the marketplaces and homes, you get to hear his message about Jesus, the Messiah, and it starts to dawn on you that Jesus Christ is the answer to all your deepest needs. Jesus is the way that you will be forgiven before a holy God. Jesus is the way into a relationship with that God. Jesus gives meaning to your life. Jesus is the one who provides escape from idolatry. Jesus is the one who gives purpose, joy, a joy like you've never known before. I mean, as I'm saying this to you, some of these feelings are bubbling up in me as I remember back in 1984, giving my life to Christ and becoming a Christian. Happens differently for all Christians, but for me, it suddenly dawned on me that day, even though I knew all about Jesus, that he wasn't mine. And when I made him mine by faith, all these feelings welled up in me. I was forgiven. I was new. Things were different. So that happens to you as a Thessalonian hearing Paul's preaching. And then he and his two assistants, Silas and Timothy, spend a few weeks with you and the rest of the baby Christian congregation and then, and then, suddenly, in the face of gathering opposition, and incidentally, this is what happens when the gospel is proclaimed, when you go through Acts, time and time again, when the gospel is proclaimed, people come to faith, but there is strong backlash, strong opposition from the people and from the authorities. And, and as that opposition starts to rise against the new church, and the hatred of Paul starts to rise, Paul the preacher has to leave town. So you've got to try and imagine, so over the course of a few weeks, it was probably more than just three weeks, it was probably, could have been a, a month or two, but over the case of a, a, the, the, the course of a few weeks, you come to know about Jesus, and as the city is turned upside down, your life is turned upside down and changed, and all this joy is bubbling up in you, and you're learning about your new faith, and you're learning about Jesus, and then Paul's gone. He's, he's, he's forced out of town. How would you feel? Well, of course, you'd be devastated, wouldn't you? You'd be devastated. You'd be worried, I would think. You're suddenly going to be all at sea. You have this new hope and joy burning, but also you still had so many questions. You had maybe some fears and anxieties welling up, gaps in your understanding. You're starting to wonder, this is wonderful, but how do I 
live and follow this Jesus through all this opposition for the rest of my life? All sorts of questions you've got. And the man you would have been relying on to answer those questions, Paul, is gone. This is, and this is the first of three points, this is the predicament that the young church finds itself in. I was so thrilled for my first sermon of the year to be able to have a three-point sermon with three Ps. It's so long since I've had a sermon with three Ps or three Cs. Um, so here you go, three Ps this morning, which give us an introduction to this letter. And what I've just been describing is the predicament the young church finds itself in that's described there in Acts 17. Because the gospel back then and now brings glorious fruit. Look at Acts 17 verse 4. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women, business women probably. Glorious fruit comes, but trouble comes too, verse 5. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. Um, that's where you found them, in the, the, the marketplace, at the gate of the city. If you wanted bad characters to cause trouble for you, that's where you found them. And they were causing trouble. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the new believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here also. When the gospel is truly proclaimed, it always brings trouble and backlash to some degree. So the believers send Paul away because they have to. And on goes Paul and Silas's ministry as you follow through in Acts, next in Berea, and then later in Athens, and then in Corinth. And it's from Corinth, probably, that Paul wrote this letter. Now, this predicament that the church finds itself in, as Paul has left them, as they've been abandoned, as they might have felt, this predicament might be alien to most of us, but elements of it are common experience for believers across the world and all the way through history. So often it happens that churches, Christians, are forced to be apart through state control. I'm not talking now about temporary COVID restrictions. I'm talking about the state saying you cannot meet You'll be arrested if you do. Pastors taken away, sometimes never seen again. Members imprisoned. Jobs lost because they follow Jesus. Being a Christian is not an easy option. The Christian faith is not a nice comfort only and a bit of a crutch. It transforms your life and your eternity believing in Jesus, but it's not an easy option. Acts 17, if I can put it this way, happens all the time today and has done throughout history. And it was their predicament then. They, they must have, I mean, if you're one of those Christians, those new Christians in Thessalonica, you must have wondered, must you, why? This God you've come to trust in, Lord, I've trusted in your son, Jesus. You sent this wonderful man, Paul, to teach me about Jesus and plant this church. And now he's gone. You've, you've allowed him to go away. Why? We often wonder that in the Christian life, don't we? And Christians across the world must wonder sometimes why they're facing the sufferings they do this morning. But the very fact that this letter was written shows that God often does not do things the way we might think best. If you read your Bible, that's what you see. The God is a sovereign and wise and loving God but often his plans don't line up with what we would expect. And yet they are always somehow for our good and for his glory and for the sake of the gospel of Jesus. So that's the predicament of the church. Now I just wanted to move on to think about Paul's 
pain. You've got the predicament of the church. You've also got Paul's pain. So put yourself in Paul's shoes now. Imagine you're Paul. You've seen these new friends turn from pagan idols to believe in Jesus. They've turned from death to now having spiritual life. And, and you've got to see their anguish as you're parted from them. Uh, a leader and teacher and apostle and pastor like Paul must have wondered, how will they cope when I've gone? Have I, have I taught them enough in my short time with them to give them a sure foundation? These are the sort of questions that go through the minds of missionaries and church planters often. They have to wrestle with these sorts of questions. Have I done enough? If I was taken away tomorrow, would they know what they need to know to carry on in the Christian walk? And so as Paul is writing from Corinth, his heart is aching for them. He feels for these new spiritual children. That's the language he uses. And if you've read Thessalonians yet, I encourage you with your scripture journal to do that later today and read it regularly as we're going through it. And as you read it, what you will see is this heart language in this letter, this, this language of Paul as a spiritual parent for his spiritual children. It's challenging for, well, Christians who are leaders in any sense, in any setting, but, but especially for those of us who are elders and pastors, it's challenging for us to ask ourselves, is this our heart for the congregations in our care? Listen to some of the language. Chapter 1, verse 2, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Just like Christians pray for their children every day, Paul prayed for his spiritual children every day. Chapter 2, Verse 7, we were like young children among you, or a possible translation is gentle. We were gentle among you, like a, like a gentle parent. Verse 8, so we cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. They, they shared everything with this new congregation. Chapter 2, verse 11, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you to his kingdom and glory. See the sort of language I'm talking about here? And it is throughout the letter. Verse 17, chapter 2, but brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. He sort of switches the metaphor around. When we were forced to leave you, he writes, it felt like we'd been orphaned, and you must have felt orphaned too. Such was the connection between us. He describes these Christians in chapter 2, verse 19, as their hope and their joy and their crown. You're our joy, he was saying to them. And when they were separated from them and spent a little time away from them, they couldn't stand it anymore, and so sent Timothy. We sent Timothy, who was our brother and co-worker in God's service, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. Why? Because at the start of chapter 3, we could stand it no longer being apart from you. And uh, an amazing phrase, if you flick over the page, uh, chapter 3, verse 8. He's heard a good report back from Timothy. So Paul was worried as he wrote this letter to the Thessalonians, but he had sent Timothy to check on the church, and Timothy had come back just before he'd written the letter with a positive report about the church. And we read this. Having heard the positive report, for now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. Now we live. Now we're, 
now we're doing okay. We've got a bit of life injected back into us because we know you're doing all right and you're standing firm. Do you see how much Paul cared for this congregation, how painful it was for him to be away from them? So as we're going through this letter in the, few, the, the coming weeks, we need to realize this is, no, this is not simply a, um, a theological treatise that, that Paul put together. It's not just some instruction because I need to give you instruction. To, to live your Christian life, because that's my job. No, this is a spiritual father with his heart aching for his spiritual children, and that's why he writes these things. And this should be the heart of any Christian leader or parent or elder or pastor. Paul's experiencing the pain of a father forced to be absent from the child. Um, I remember some years ago now, when the kids were little, occasionally having to go away to a conference or on business or whatever, and I mean, I, I hadn't liked leaving Kath beforehand, but once you've got children too, it just, you just feel awful going away and leaving them, don't you? And that was just for a few nights. Paul left them and didn't know on that occasion probably whether he'd ever see them again. This is the heart of Paul that is poured out in this letter. And at the center of all this parental concern, he has a particular fear. His pain has a center because he has a worry for this church. If you flip back to chapter 3, one Thessalonians, and we read it in verse 5. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. He sent Timothy to find out how they were doing. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might be in vain. I was afraid that the tempter had tempted you and your, our labors might have been in vain. So when you read this letter, because there's so much lovely positive stuff bubbling over in the early chapters you can miss this because it's nestled in the middle of the letter the letter starts with paul's joy at the encouraging report from timothy but until he'd received that report and to a degree even after he'd received the report he experiences this deep concern and burden for them by the way there's no indication that this is um, a sinful fear there is such a thing as sinful fear and sinful anxiety we can slip into sometimes there's no indication this is sinful. This is a fear that God the Holy Spirit has put on Paul's heart. This is, this is good pastoral worry and worry on its knees. This is what gives birth to a letter so full of passion. Paul is fearful for them that the tempter, the devil, Satan, will, through this persecution and everything that's happening, draw them away from faith in Christ. Paul is not complacent about them working out their salvation. He doesn't tick the conversion box and say, great, we converted a bunch there. Let's move on to the next project. He doesn't artificially separate out on the one hand evangelism and then discipleship on the other. Great, you've come to faith. Let's learn how to live a, a useful and comfortable Christian life. Once people come to faith, Paul knows, they must go on in that faith. If it's really faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will go on in that faith. And that's his desire for the Thessalonians. Yes, there's plenty of evidence we see in the letter that they had been saved. They'd been forgiven and rescued through faith in Jesus. But he wants to see ongoing evidence that they haven't only been saved, but they are being saved and they will be fully and finally saved. He wants to see them, in other words, sanctified that's a letter that does come up in the letter if you look at the end of the letter chapter 5 verse 23 may god himself the god of peace sanctify you through and through change you make you more holy make you more like jesus this is his desire for them this is paul's heart and the desire of any faithful christian leader that the people in the church grow 
And it's the opposite of Satan's desire. We Christians have an earnest, deadly earnest, and very real enemy. The one who's referred to there is the tempter by Paul. But if you look in chapter 2, verse 18, you see him referred to again. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. Paul knows that they have a very real and powerful spiritual enemy. We must be under no illusions uh, going into 2022 that the top priority of the enemy, Satan, the devil, is to draw away from the faith those who are professing to be believers in Jesus. Satan has various powers at his disposal, fiery darts of doubt, stirring up persecution against the church, sending intense temptation. Satan's got lots of tools in his toolbox, but the sovereign God who saves his people to the uttermost gives his Holy Spirit and gives his word, the Bible, to sustain and keep his people in the faith. Several times the word of God is referred to in this letter, in a letter that is actually itself part of the word of God. I love this. I, this thrilled me when I saw this thought this week. Not that the devil hates the church and attacks the church and wants to destroy our faith. That doesn't thrill me. What thrills me is that the devil wants to destroy their faith and wants to destroy our faith in Jesus. He wants them spiritually to be dead, not alive. So what does God do? The church has this terribly efficient and powerful enemy. What does God do for the Thessalonians? He sends them a letter. He inspires the Apostle Paul to write the first letter to the Thessalonians. The devil wants them dead. God sends them a letter. We believe in this church that this book, the Bible, is the word of God and it is powerful. And what keeps us in the faith, well, there are various things God gives us to keep us in the faith, but one of the primary things is his word, the Bible. Satan wanted the church dead, so God sent them a letter. So when you're reading it this week in your scripture journal or your Bible back home, this isn't just information. This isn't just a religious book. This is what keeps you in the faith. So that's Paul's pain, his fear for them, which leads us on to which is saying that God sent them a letter. So what's in the letter and what are the purposes of the letter? We'll finish with that. I can only give you some of the things here that are in the letter, some of the purposes, some of the themes, but let me give you some of them as a taster. And then Dave and I, by God's grace, God is willing, are going to unpack these few in the weeks ahead. The purpose or purposes of the letter. In a nutshell, I think you can put the purposes of the letter under two main headings. First of all, encouragement, and second of all, urging. First of all, let's think about the encouragement. When you read this letter, you see Paul's joy in the Thessalonians and their faith bubbling over. He's, re he's received this report from Timothy that they're doing okay. More than okay, they're doing well. They're standing in the faith. They're sharing their faith. They're growing. And, and Paul is thrilled. And so he wants to encourage them. He points out to them that he can see these signs of grace in them, faith and hope and love. He has heard about these things and he wants to say to them, yes, God is at work in you. And he does this not just to make them feel good, but chapter 3, verse 13, to strengthen their hearts, to keep them strong in their faith. Encouragement is such an important part of the Christian life and the Christian walk. We need to be encouraging each other in the signs of grace we see in each other. So part of the letter, the first part of the letter, really, the first big purpose of the letter is to encourage 
the Thessalonian Christians. But then the other part, and it's largely in the second part of the letter, and Paul starts to move into it, is urging. He's encouraged them, but he urges them too. He wants more for them. Chapter 3, verse 10. I wonder how you'd feel if this letter was written to you personally, to the Christians in the Bridge Church, and this was said about you. Uh, start with verse 9. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may, we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. How do you like that phrase applied to you? What's lacking in your faith? Will that get your back up? Will that, will that annoy you? Will that upset you? Would you find that offensive? I think a lot of Christians, I, I, I do speak for myself here. If someone said, Matt, can I come alongside you and help you and mentor you because there's a lot lacking in your faith? I wouldn't like to hear that. But it's actually a wonderful thing to have people who will speak into your life and do that and have the word of God speak into your life to do that. Of course, we lack things in our faith because we still need to grow. Hands up if you reach sinless perfection yet. Okay, great. So we all need this. We all need to grow. But too often, Christians will say, pastors and elders and people who've been Christians for decades will say to themselves, if not to other people, well, I've not got much more to learn now. I've pretty much got, I know I'm a sinner still, but I've pretty much got there. That's a dangerous place to be as a Christian. I just say that to you this morning, whether you're young in the faith, very new in the faith, or you've been a Christian for decades or, or somewhere in between, that's a dangerous place to be. A healthy Christian is a growing Christian. A Christian who is not growing is unhealthy and is in danger because we have an enemy. So how does Paul seek to make up to them what they're lacking? How does he urge them? Well, he teaches them, teaching them about what their lives for Christ will look like. Let me just quickly highlight a few areas. But before I get there, can I just stress what the main burden and focus of the teaching in this letter is? He urges them and teaches them to do all sorts of things. But right at the heart of it, there's a particular focus. And that focus is the coming day of the Lord the return of Jesus. It gets more and more obvious as you get towards the end of the letter, and there's even more about it in 2 Thessalonians. Read that as well. The focus at the heart of his teaching is the coming day of the Lord, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in space and time and history. You remember we saw this idea in the book of Revelation? We saw it in Malachi as well, the day of the Lord, when God finally wraps everything up, brings judgment on those who have rebelled against him and brings into his kingdom those who have trusted in Jesus and puts everything under the visible public headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the day of the Lord. And so when Paul is teaching the Thessalonians, everything he teaches them is in the light of that coming day. And that teaching really only makes sense and really only grounds itself and is really only powerful in light of the coming again of Jesus. That's the center of gravity of the letter the bright light on the horizon for Paul as he teaches them. He wants to see increasing evidence, you see, that when Jesus returns on the day of the Lord, they, the Thessalonian Christians, will not cower in fear, but will stand with joy because they've held on to their faith in Jesus, because they've grown. And that is his heart's desire that stands at the center of all his teaching for them. Hence our series title, living for the coming king, living for the coming king. And so having encouraged them, Paul 
says to them, you know, I've seen God's grace at work in you. He then urges them. You see that word urge in chapter 2, verse 12. He urges them to live out their lives with King Jesus' return as their great goal and focus and motivation. He urges them to be sanctified, to grow in holiness with their eyes fixed on that day. By hearing the encouragements and the commands and the urgings of Paul, whilst reminding themselves daily that they will stand before this Jesus they have trusted. Do you do that, I wonder? Be a good resolution to give yourself for 2022. Each day, remind yourself, maybe say it out loud, I will see Jesus. Or Jesus is coming back for me. This is the reality of our Christian faith. If, if, if that's not true, what's our faith about? We will see Jesus. So, quick fire, a few examples of some of his strands of teaching and how he sees them and roots them in light of the coming day of the Lord. So he says to them, grow in showing faith and hope and love, chapter 4, verse 10. Why? Because growing in faith and hope and love will show the reality of Jesus to a pagan world around you that doesn't know Jesus or care about him. When you show faith, hope and love, it'll stand out and it'll make people wonder about Jesus. Here's another one. Keep on sharing your faith. He encourages them at the start that the gospel has gone out from them, that they've witnessed to Jesus. Why keep sharing your faith? Like, like, you know, Dave and Steve were saying earlier, talking about passion for life, talking about sharing our faith. Why? Is it because it's a, a box-ticking exercise to make sure we get to heaven? No, we get to heaven because we put our faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. Is it to impress other people? No, it, we share our faith because Jesus is coming back. And everybody we know is going to see him. And we want them to trust him and love him. So they will not be judged when he returns. So keep sharing your faith because Jesus will return. Grow in holiness. Be sanctified. Why? Why grow more like Jesus? Because it feels nice? Well, <laughs> in one sense it does. It's a glorious thing to grow more like Jesus. It's also a very painful thing that makes you stick out like a sore thumb. So why grow more like Jesus? Because it is linked to standing firm on the day that Jesus returns. May he strengthen your hearts, chapter 3, verse 13, so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus Christ comes with his holy ones. Growing in holiness is not an optional extra for Christians. It's the evidence you truly belong to Christ. I'll give you one more. Paul says to them, grow in knowing what your future looks like. When you read 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, you learn what it means to be a Christian. You learn what happens when you die. You learn what happens when Jesus returns. Paul maps it out for us. Why is it important to know what your future looks like? Because this is your indescribably amazing future as a Christian, and seeing it clearly will shape your present Seeing your future clearly will shape your present, will shape the now. This is what it means to be and to grow as a Christian. And this is what Paul teaches the Thessalonians about. This is what it means. I, I should say something about the, the one verse I was given as I close. Uh, the one verse I was given. For, so normally when we do a new series, um, what happens is Dave, Dave and I knock some ideas around. We talk to the other elders. We come up with what the preaching program is. And then either myself or Dave normally breaks down the preaching program and gives out the verses. Now, I've given some pretty tricky passages, as many of you will know, to Dave uh, over the last year or so in Malachi and other places. 
I think he's kind of got his revenge this time because when he portioned up 1 Thessalonians, he gave me the first sermon and he gave me 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 1. That was it. That's all he gave. So I've done the whole letter anyway, Dave, sorry. But he gave me 1 verse 1, so I should finish with saying just a few words about that wonderful verse. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say to the church in Thessalonica. He says to the church of the Thessalonians, in God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when you live out what Paul teaches in this letter as a believer in Jesus, you know that your ultimate dwelling place, your current dwelling place actually, is not this world, this town, this city, this part of Cardiff. You're in God. You are so united to God and the Lord Jesus by faith in a mysterious way that you're described as being in them. What a wonderful place that is to be at the start of 2022. This is what grace experienced and grace at work looks like. So the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. God's powerful grace has worked in their lives to bring them to faith and he wants their grace to go, God's grace to go on working in their lives. This is what it means to be a Christian then and in 2022. And if you're feeling the weight of all this talk about the need to change and grow in holiness and hold on in your faith, well, you should be feeling the weight of it in one sense because Paul is urging you to hold on to Christ this year. But there's a wonderful comfort at the end of the letter too. So I'm pinching another verse that I'm not supposed to be speaking on this morning. Look, chapter 5, verse 24, having urged them to do all these things and grow in grace to be sanctified, the one who calls you in faith is faithful and he will do it. He will hold me fast. The group can start coming up now because we're going to sing that to close. He will hold me fast. He will hold you fast, is what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians. And one of the ways he does this is by sending us letters like Thessalonians. That's how he holds us fast. And this is my prayer for us as we enter into this short series in 1 Thessalonians, that the lovely and mighty spirit of the living God would be at work in us and through his word. And if we listen, if we really listen, we will be changed because he will encourage us, rebuke us, teach us and prepare us so that when Jesus comes back, maybe this year, we will be found steadfast in him because through letters like this, he will hold us fast. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for the privilege of having this letter to the Thessalonians work in us through your word today. And in every day of this year, we pray in the precious and powerful name of Jesus, Father. Amen.